0: To the talking sports books podcast and coming up in this edition I'm joined by one of sports broadcasting's greats who is celebrating 50 years in the television industry by releasing a book that looks back at his varied and successful career his name Gary Newbon and his book called Newbon Bloody Hell is out this week now, if you missed the last show, then it too is very listable as we welcome the Irish boxing legend Carl Frampton, who joined me to look at his just-released autobiography. And this too, very different from the normal sports person's biography. And again, one of the better books that we've looked at this year. Every subject uh, discussed in knowledgeable and eloquent fashion from growing up in Tiger's Bay representing his country the highs of winning world titles and obviously the fallout with Barry McGuigan. Now here's a clip with Carl looking back at day 1 of his boxing career that journey that began when he was just 7 years of age. The story beginning in this in this blue Monday. I'm trying to imagine you sat in the back whilst Uh, There's arguments going on with Billy and Joe in the front, and you're just seven years old. Yeah. Very, very young.
1: Yeah, very young. And what I remember about that, I'm I'm sure I was the only one, um, the only boxer that they were bringing up to the North Coast that night. And when I was doing that, the roads and stuff were very different. So from from Belfast to kind of Portrush direction where the fight was, you can do it inside an hour but back then it was probably an hour and a half to get up there and um yeah it, it was it was strange obviously just you know this kid making his, his first fight at seven years old it, it, to, to, to do that and, and have that much effort into me having my first fight it was i don't know maybe the boy saw something in me maybe they saw that I, I was a wee bit talented and i could do something um yeah. Yeah, uh, and Joe, Joe and Billy, both, both my coaches. Um, but, I mean, at times I, I I think they didn't even like each other, these guys. Like, the <laughs> arguments were wild, wild arguments all the time.
0: Growing up in uh, Tigers Bay and Canning Street, you, your first love is, is football. Uh, and your teacher at school had celebrity links to a football legend.
1: Yeah, that's right, Um so David Healy, um, Northern Ireland's leading top goal scorer and, and a bit of a hero of mine, his his aunt taught me uh, in primary four. So Mrs. Healy, I uh, later found out her name was Deborah, but you never know your teachers' names, do you, when you're in primary <laughs> school? <laughs> no, um,
0: his miss. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and I, I mean, I still, you know, I bump into a teacher, and I, you still have to call them Miss or Sir, don't you? You can't, you can't call them their first name, but um, she was a lovely lady. And uh, But football, was, I loved football. I I was okay at it. I enjoyed it. I played for a couple of local clubs. Um, yeah, and was half decent, but it was certainly, football for me was certainly more enjoyable than boxing anyway.
0: Your mum uh, said that you you started to ask about boxing when you were three. And it was she, yeah. it was her that sent you to the boxing club, and your dad thought you were maybe a bit too young.
1: Yeah, yeah, she says that. I don't know if that's exaggerated or not, but that's what she says. So, um, I mean, the local the local boxing club was, uh, you know, two hundred yards from from a front door. So, I think I was just curious, really, because I wasn't from a big family of boxers or anything like that. Um, you know, we always had an interest. In the support, the sport, I suppose, my dad, and my uncles, and, and certainly my granddad, my two grandads as well. But um, yeah, I, I was very, very young. I mean, seven. When I was seven, I probably looked like I was four or five as well. Um, the good.
0: And, I was going to say yeah. the, the the good thing about this book, right, is is that you don't skirt around any of the the issues. You're you're, you're quite frank, and you're quite happy to to. Uh, share of you and i'm trying to imagine um you as a as a young kid you you mentioned and talk about the the troubles and the the really poignant quote i picked out here was when you said look growing up in in tigers bay you were conscious of either being you know protestant or or catholic and you think that you have to hate whoever the opposite is because everybody else did
1: yeah it's quite a
0: poignant quote
1: yeah, and I mean, you, you know, growing up in an area where I I grew up Tigers Bay, and, and I suppose guys that were growing up in the neighbouring New Lodge, which was a a Republican area, um, they yeah. would have probably thought that, uh, along the exact same lines. And, and you're influenced by anyone older on you, really, at that age. And I mean, they don't have to be a positive influence, but they, <laughs> most of the times they're not a positive influence. But yeah. um, these are the guys that you kind of look up to, just because. That's what happens, and um, yeah, you're you're kind of it's it's just built into you that, and you don't yeah, really know it. why. But the, these guys across the road, you know, they don't like us, and we don't like them, and and that's the way it is. Uh,
0: even though your physique was was slight, like Billy McKeith, he was the one that saw the the athlete in you. Did he the the reflexes, the agility, coordination, all the basic attributes? Uh, uh, Joe was the army uh disciplinarian so so these were a couple weren't they Uh, almost like the odd couple
1: joe was joe was strict um he kind of i don't know his his personality it kind of it got a bit easier (laughs) not easier but he, he just quietened down a bit more and became a bit more sensitive i think the older he got but joe was joe was hard work um he, and I'm, I mean, it's just a, yeah, a yeah. generational thing, isn't it? And coming from, you know, uh, the army and, and spend a long time in the army and his military background, he was very, re- very regimental. But Billy, Billy had a wee bit of a, a softer touch. But in saying that, I don't want to paint Billy out to be, you know, a soft guy because he wasn't. He was, he was quite a hard, a hard person.
0: So you, you begin as a, as a Southpaw. Because basically, as you said, you were right-handed, and you just thought that was the thing to do. I was surprised that they didn't immediately. They saw you doing this, say, "Right, come over here. This isn't the way you do it."
1: Yeah, no, it it was. They kind of switched me a a bit, and it took a while for me to kind of get used to it. It just, I think, when when you just start boxing, it, it seems a little bit unnatural to to lead with your weaker hand and and your weaker foot really so uh, i think most kids probably go through the same thing that um their strong hand is the hand that they lead with and um yeah they 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 changed me they changed my stance but i'm kind of hoping that knowing the issues that i had with southpaws kind of coming through the amateurs i was you know it might have been it might have been better if they kept me at southpaw
0: Carl Fronten it was talking there his autobiography is out now it is available from all the usual outlets and you can hear the entire interview on the last show you can download or stream it from the website or any streaming platform it's a good book it really is as indeed is today's guest and that is where we're going next Gary Newbon. he's releasing his book this week it's called Gary Newbon. bloody hell or it might be Gary Newborn, bloody hell. It's a look back at his 50 years in sports media, primarily, of course, in television. Uh, there are a few out there that can match his achievements over the years from reporting on pretty much every major sporting event on the calendar across a multitude of sports, including, of course, his best known contributions in football and boxing. He was also on site at the Olympic Games in Munich in 1972. We'll talk about that again in a minute. Uh, the book at times is laugh out loud. Funny, I can tell you. So let us hear then from the man himself as we delve into 50 years of sporting memories. 60 years, isn't it, almost to the month, September 1964, that you yeah, begin your career September. in Cambridge. September
2: yeah september 64 uh, yeah, actually at uh,
0: the agency yeah and i love i mean it, it, it is this little window into into how much things have changed in a short period of time and you're in on five quid a week you go out yeah. for the first morning and your boss takes you for a walk buys you an address book and next on the item <laughs> of things to do teach you how to drink
2: well, it put me off scotch for the rest of my life, for sure. Uh, I, I hate spirits. Otherwise, I might have become an alcoholic because I love wine and I still drink the odd pint of draft beer. Um, yeah, I mean, cultures have changed. I, I When I was an executive in, in, in the business of television, I did a lot of deals over very long lunches. And I've got to be honest, even though I still work every day and work hard, I still enjoy a long lunch um, now you see that people take uh, go out to a sandwich bar, come back and sit in front of their screens. I think one of the most important things of business is meeting people, knowing people, having contacts, having access. Mm. And it's very difficult if you spend half an hour in front of your screen eating a sandwich for lunch. Um, that doesn't make sense to me, but that's the modern world. Uh,
0: your first interview, Mandy yes. Rice Davis.
2: It uh, was wonderful.
0: Wow. I mean you know you were literally thrown in at the at the deep end because i mean this this was big news back in in the day in 1964
2: it was i mean just so people know the um the the, the, the minister of war wasn't it uh, john profumo yes. um had slept uh allegedly i suppose it was proved uh, allegedly with um uh, with a, a lady called christine keeler and there was mandy rice davis who was a showgirl and um it became he lied about the relationship the the problem was that Christine Keeler was also apparently having an affair with a russian uh KGB man um and uh, obviously things were at risk and the problem was that perfumo uh, denied it in the house of of commons and that's where the big scandal was there were court cases and lord astor denied having an affair with mandy rice davis and she said that famous phrase in court well he would wouldn't he <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> part of uh, english uh literature now i think well not literature more of a language of phrases and things
0: uh, and, it, and day two it's E.M. Oh. Forster. So there was no time oh. to relax and bathe oh. in glories, because you're off to do E.M. Forster for yeah. the the very famous uh, William Hickey column.
2: Yes, the Daily Express. The first one had been for the Daily Mirror. Mandy had been peering in a nightclub in a village called March. You wouldn't get a nightclub in a village called March anymore. So I'll go off to King's College, where this very old. E.M. Forster. I'd read his book at school, *Passage for India*, India, and uh, he wouldn't open the door, and <laughs> he he uh, kept asking me who I was, why I was there, and what I wanted. And um, he told me, in rather an impolite phrase for a great novelist, to to disappear. And when I got back to the office, uh, I was really distraught, um, and my boss um, uh, put his arm around me, Mike Cock, and said, Gary, get used to it. It won't be the last time that somebody tells you to off <laughs> uh, in your career. So uh, that was an interesting baptism, being on my own, uh, working on my own for the first time. Uh, but was be- all great experience, really, and experiences that I don't think people are going to get today.
0: Uh, and the and the many life lessons that you you talk about in the early stages of this they keep on coming uh, travel first class and you will think yes. first class
2: that was one of the great tips i got actually i mean uh, the reason i could afford to be on 5 pound a week was because i was still living at home i'm a cambridge boy and my parents didn't want any money off me. They were building a successful business. So I was very lucky from that point of view. Um, and I, But I I had a girlfriend, obviously, as most people did. Um, at 19 I was. And uh, I was trying to take her out. And it was a bit difficult on that money. So um, uh, I was a bit tempted to pocket the difference between second-class welfare and first-class. But this great <laughs> photographer, Louis Garnet, said, no, 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 you, you travel first-class. It's not your money. And you think first class, and it was a great tip. And uh, you definitely feel a benefit if you travel in com- If you're lucky enough to travel in comfort, whether it's on a plane or, or a train,
0: it, it took you a bit of time to get used to the whole expenses thing, didn't it? Because you had the trip to Paris for the, yes. the rugby and the the uproar when you put your expenses claim in that didn't actually exceed the total of your float.
2: No, we ought to stress that life is different now. You yeah. can't pay <laughs> your expenses, but it was a fair game in those days for journalists um, subsidizing their wages. And I I got this trip to, I became the rugby correspondent for the for the Sunday Mirror, which sounds unlikely in this day and age, but it was a, a big deal in those days with such a big circulation. So I go off to Paris with a, with a, a float, as they call it, advance expenses, and I didn't spend it all. And when I did my expenses, when I came back, I had the intention, having been brought up as an honest citizen, to hand money back. There was a crisis meeting in the sports editor's office. I was the only one not invited, and I got the biggest volley of abuse Um, you know if you want to wreck your expenses don't do it for the rest of us I was uh, John Clark the Speedway reporter they had so many specialists in those days on sport Uh, he had he was ordered to redo my expenses and the company finished up owing me more than I'd taken out there so that was quite a lesson Um, not a thing to be recommended in this day and age
0: uh, your first football report when you are off to Charlton and Millwall uh, yeah. for Haters. Um, yes. Uh, it, it didn't get well received, did it, the first one?
2: No. Um, I didn't have a byline on that. Um, but the thing was that I, I worked for this agency in Cambridge, which was really good. I, I got discovered by George Casey, the legendary sports editor of the Sunday Mirror. But he put me into Haters. And asked haters to take uh, to take me because that was a really good finishing school for polishing me up as a journalist, which obviously has benefited me over the years. So I thought I was quite smart, you know. I was uh, what 22. Uh, I go to uh, Reg asked me to do this match ahead of the game, which was um, Charlton nil, Millwall nil, and <laughs> I read this piece in the Sunday Times. I thought. Gosh, this is marvellous the way I've written this. Turn up in his office. He throws the Sunday Times, because I start the following Monday, the day after the Sunday Times came out. There are rings everywhere. Do not use this if you want to stay here. We have a reputation, and we don't want somebody like you ruining it. I was quite upset, because uh, I thought it was good. And I remember it starting with, it was. And you learn your lessons, particularly in those days. I never used the phrase, but began with the word it ever again. <laughs> um, so... uh, That was a lesson and I sat down quite depressed and a great friend of mine who no longer with us, unfortunately, Chris Lander, put his arm around me and said, welcome to haters. Just get your head down and get on with it.
0: The other thing that people don't realise when you go to cover these games, and and I remember coming across this for the first time and thinking, my God, I can't can't believe what I'm seeing here. You cover games for multiple outlets, so you could be in the press box covering this game and writing, and the content will be going to six or seven different uh, different journals, papers online these days, of course, but multiple outlets.
2: Yeah, local papers. I mean, I remember one in particular: the Chelsea uh, floodlit match, <laughs> a
0: Chelsea. Game.
2: Sorry, a youth game, and <laughs> and I was the only bloke in the press box. And I I never had a chance to write a word because of all these different papers and they were all hitting deadlines. And I had to run down at one point, I remember, and ask the linesmen, as they were called in those days, who scored? Um, (laughs) And I always carried, although I didn't smoke, I I was to smoke cigars later on but I I, I don't smoke now but um, I I used to carry a cigarette lighter primarily for lighting young ladies cigarettes as a bit of a chat up line as I was single Uh, but I used it uh, because they put the lights out when I was still dictating rewrites as they called them and one occasion I had to climb out of Stamford Bridge they'd locked up and gone home not realising I was still working Um, that was life at Hater Sports Agency
0: Incredible Uh, and again as we're meandering through this book you know the the other life lessons always dress for work
2: yes i mean you wouldn't go out in the 60s 50s and 60s without a tie on i mean to think now that managing directors hate wearing ties um, you just wouldn't go out on a date without a tie on and and a jacket and everything i mean life has changed it's one of the many i think american influences i mean i quite i haven't got a tie on as i'm talking to you obviously you can't see me but i'm Um, uh, I, I wear a tie when I have to I wear a dinner jacket when I have to with a bow tie but I prefer not to wear a tie but I wouldn't go to very rarely go to a football match or a race meeting without a tie on because the first thing that people look at when you see somebody on television is how they are dressed yeah Agreed. You know, it's a very important thing. I mean, autocue, for instance, which I very rarely used in my career, but autocue, and I certainly didn't have it at Westwood Television when I started, autocue is there for newsreaders to look at the viewers, because once you put your head down and start reading something, the viewers start thinking subconsciously, what's he looking at? So that was an American thing that came in to make sure that the eyes were contact with the viewers. So They look at that as well. But the first thing people look at is how is he dressed on television?
0: Yeah, you mentioned the Westwood television. You were offered a job as a a floor manager initially at the BBC, weren't you? And your response was, no thanks, I want to be a star.
2: Yes. (laughs) I mean, how arrogant can you be? You know, I mean, you know, in my book, um, Barry Hearn did the foreword. Um, and he says that some people think of Gary Newborn was made of a bar of chocolate he'd eat himself, um, which was a bit harsh, because I hope that I've never behaved like that. But I certainly did on that occasion. I mean, I'd made up my mind that... that newspapers i had been persuaded by sam leach a famous columnist that my future would be in television not in newspapers it was going to be a shrinking industry which it wasn't then but of course he's proved to be right on that the print side of it um although i still think there's room for newspapers um but you know i i wanted to be a presenter i wanted to do programs i didn't want to be a floor manager not not that there's anything wrong with floor managers the one thing i'd like crews and television crews and studio crews to think about me was that I always had the greatest respect for everybody working in television and indeed I had a reputation for going around after a live show thanking all the people involved in making it because it is a team game and sometimes TV presenters get a bit carried away with their own importance they're just the face in front of a a machine a team that where you need sound people you need floor managers you need you need directors, you need uh, vision people, you need everybody. It should be a team game television. So, uh, yeah, but I still wanted to be a presenter. And when I got my chance, I was frightened out of my skin. I was four years out of school, had a tough journalistic a background which has always served me throughout my career and i'm suddenly facing this piece of glass that gives you nothing nothing <laughs> back it doesn't smile it doesn't laugh it's not interested in what you're saying and the red light goes on and you are conscious that a lot of people are watching. As it happened at Westwood Television, it was a very small West Country area, but it was still big time to me. And I had—I didn't know how I was going to get rid of these nerves. I was on a three-month trial. I'd been offered a bigger job at Anglia Television, and they were a bit shocked when I took Westward down in Plymouth instead of Norwich. But my home area was East Anglia. I'm an East Anglian boy, educated, born in Cambridge, educated in Suffolk. And I wanted to go somewhere where nobody would know anything about me because I had quite a successful split career which is in Mots- John Motson's book I was in the yes. same year at boarding school as John Motson anyway um, how I got over it would probably have cost this very brilliant uh, local uh, anchor man and former actor called Kenneth Macleod, long gone unfortunately he was absolutely brilliant and um, he listened to me and said that he could help me cure my problem of nerves and I there was a short gap between his news local news program and my sports program which was twice a week and, uh, as I walked past him, having bought him a lot of scotches, uh, listening to him, um, not realizing he never saw any in my programs. Um, I was waiting for this word of advice and it never came. But as he passed me, he gave me this tremendous whack in the testicles and I was <laughs> in absolute agony and I sailed through the program. All I wanted to do was get to my dressing room and put some ice on my private parts. <laughs> and, uh, the point that he was making was, what are you worried about? And, of course, I lost my nerves. I suddenly thought, if I can do that show, I'm looking at a piece of glass. Think about the cameraman. Don't think about anybody else. And concentrate on the words you are saying. So how I got over it was, obviously, experience now. Like I'm talking, you know, I've got to be careful I don't over talk on this show because I'm finding talking easy these days. But I, but I concentrate on what I'm saying. And I still did that in front of million. Uh, later in television career, where I was appearing in front of millions of people, especially on the boxing and the football, I I, I concentrate on what I'm saying and don't think about. Uh, I'm conscious of the audience, but I'm not thinking about how many people are watching or listening. This. So that was a big lesson. That guy would have been sacked on the spot in <laughs> 2023, but thank God in in 1968 he wasn't.
0: You moved to uh, ATV in 71 in December. And what's great about having the career that you've had is you can look back at things that didn't maybe mean much then, but now are significant. First of all, of course, there was the the piece with Arnold Schwarzenegger. uh, And then it was the first ever interview with with Trevor Francis as a 14-year-old kid.
2: Yeah, I mean... I got my. Nobody went to the gym in those days. Uh, you played football. You put your coats down. Had five-a-side football, or, or you played cricket or French cricket, or you played tennis, or you went. So you didn't go to the gym. I mean, that's probably unheard of today. But you didn't go to the gym. So I get this phone call from this guy who's got a gym. He's paid a lot of money for this young, younger than me, uh, Mr. Olympia who didn't speak English, he didn't speak... Uh, he's just said hello, and tea were the only two words in those days he could say. I didn't want him on the programme. And the guy said, look, I haven't sold any tickets. And I said, well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and he said, look, everybody, everybody, my dear, watches your sports desk. Now, if you get him on there, I could sell my tickets, love. So I said, well, I don't want him on. Anyway, he wore me down, and I uh, got my programme fixed. I, I said, come in and record it. If it's any good, I'll use it, which I did in the end. And if... Um, if if I don't like it, I'm not going to use it. We said, well, I've got nothing to lose my dear. I'll bring him in. So this huge guy comes in, really tall, absolute, rippling with muscles, coming out of his ears, as the bloke said. And all he could say was, hello, and tea. And <laughs> and Chris Robertson, the press officer there, came out to me and said, oh, you got this chap in. Uh, I said, are you going to use it? I said, I don't know. I can't even pronounce his name. I said, bloody hell. So anyway, um, he said, do you want your picture taken with him? I said, no, we'll never hear of him again. When I was leaving the building after I'd shown it, the switchboard girls who really liked me were cursing me, saying, we're cursing you, Gary Newborn. We've got phone calls from people watching in Cornwall saying, get that man off the tellys, He's putting my kids off their pasties.'" <laughs> anyway, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Whoops. And said, I'd never hear of him again. Whoops. He <laughs> <laughs> certainly did. Um, and then um, Trevor. Trevor Francis. Now, I've got this 14-year-old schoolboy who's was brilliant playing for Plymouth schools with everybody wanted to sign him and he came in for an interview he was nervous I was nervous thank God they didn't did not record the interview and uh, it, it we got through it anyway he signed for Birmingham City and then in 1970 uh, London asked for me to go to the World Cup. Uh, as the youngest reporter, Um, I did not know, but Westwood Television refused to release me, thinking I'd never come back. When I found out afterwards that I'd been denied the chance, I made up my mind I've got to leave and go to a big station. I couldn't be having this in my career. So I bumped into uh, Billy Wright at a cocktail party, the Billy Wright, famous 105 caps for England and Wolves, 21 years at Wolves lovely, lovely man who who was very famous but never chose to remind you that he was famous. And he said, We're looking for a new sports presenter. And I said, I think I'm your man. And then and I cut long story short, I, I finished up at ATV in Birmingham. Um and the rest of, as they say, is history. That was my big break. In nineteen seventy two I covered the Munich Olympics and I got dragged out of bed at some unearthly hour. Uh, to cover the terrorist attack which was all obviously a new experience for me Mm -hmm. at the age of 27 I just got engaged to my wife uh, who worked at at ATV and uh, I did it over the phone actually Uh, she was at a restaurant I'd already planned it I won't go into that but I planned Mm -hmm. it all Um, that was 50 years ago and um, well we got married 50 years ago rather that was 1972 and I did so well on the terrorist attack that ITN offered me a a job on the spot but uh, I didn't want to go there actually i wanted to be sports matches and things presenter um and and my boss i was just going to say sorry just to finish that very quickly um my boss overheard it and he was furious and he said you're not going are you and i said no he said well when you get back instead of the yearly contracts you're coming on the staff and i will give you a final salary pension which meant absolutely nothing to me at the age of 27 it
0: does now (laughs) well
2: well, when i i I got headhunted uh by ITN they did me a massive favour. That pension was in the end worth a fortune and means I'd never have to worry about money again.
0: That, that that night in Munich you you had that that tip off. You you climbed over the wire fences to get into the village and and got yeah. onto the terrace of the, the Puerto Rican teams that has were literally watching and observing and and filming. Yeah. Uh, yeah
2: absolutely and in fact I was stupid. I went round the back of the Israeli thing and bumped into a boxer called Terry Spink who'd been at I think at the Olympics previously was now coached to North Korea and uh, I soon whip all back to where our base was across I was working with the ITN guys and the local Stuart McConaughey from London Weekend and an ITN crew and I watched the whole thing really and it was just so sad I mean just depressing and I saw the guy the hostage come out with the guy with the white helmet the famous picture there and it's it's, it was well, just terrible. So when I read about wars and things, my father was in the war. He threw 40 times in, in the RAF over Germany. I just sort of often think back to that. that it's so futile and hopeless, mm-hmm. all these disputes. It's often about religion and race and everything else. It just, it's just sickening, really. And I, I, it had a huge impact on me that, and I mean... I suddenly realised there are more important things in, in life than sport and television.
0: Relationships have always been very important to you. And again, if you look back at this time, it, it's hard to believe that you could be sat there one night and you get a phone call from a West Bromwich Albion director, as Brian Boundy calls you up and says, "Listen, we want to change our yeah. manager. Uh, can you suggest anyone?"
2: <laughs> yeah, what, what happened there? I mean, that happened a lot in those days. Actually, journalists tapping up because we we're all trusted. You have to, just sidetracking for a moment, if I may, you have to understand that one of the biggest changes was that in those days, there were about 12 reporters. There was yes. the, the National Newspapers had regional football reporters. There was the Press Association, XTEL, local newspapers, one local radio station, if there was one then, I can't remember, but certainly there was the BBC. And that was it. And you were trusted. So you knew what you could report on, you knew what you couldn't. I remember Brian Clough saying that, you know, he'd give us all stories and headlines and everything else, and then he'd say, right, put your microphone down, put your camera away, put your pens down, we're going out for a drink, and that would be it. What stayed on tour, what happened on tour, stayed on tour. Uh, So Brian Baldy rings me, knowing that I'm not going to spill the beans, and said, Burt Millerchip, our chairman, is the chairman of the F Football Association and can't be seen to poach anyone who would you suggest so i said well i'll tell you what i think john bond at norwich city would be brilliant for lots of reasons they're having a great run in europe or i can't remember if it was europe but it's certainly in the league uh he's a charismatic guy he's terrific he's just what you want he, the media love him etc etc can you get it i rang him up do you want the j- job Bondy? yeah love it mate thank you very much so i rang bandy back and said he's interested anyway i didn't hear anything for two days And Boundy rings me back, lovely director, and he says, he's turned us over. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, all he's done is double his salary with Arthur South, (laughs) the chairman at Norwich. Leave me out of it. Anyway, my phone goes, a private phone I had then. it's Ron Atkinson, who I'd known as a player manager at Kettering, and he's now manager of my home club, Cambridge United. Uh, Boundy's rang me. About this job, yes, Ron, I can't believe you put Bond before me. (laughs) I said, Ron, I didn't even think about you. Don't make it worse. He says, now get on the phone, good lad, get on that phone and get hold of Boundy and get me the job, which is what I did. Boundy said, what do you think? I said, I think, (laughs) truly, don't mention I never thought of him because he's gone potty about that. I said, he'd be brilliant. And, of course, he came and he was absolutely brilliant. And... In fairness to Ron, we're still the closest of friends. And Ron, when he got the job, he met Bert Millerchip in secret at Oxford. He rang me and said, I'm coming to the studio. So I got the first interview as well. There were one or two times when managers let you down. They promised you the first interview, did something. I remember Bert Head at Crystal Palace. When I was at Haters, I moved Roger Hoy for him from Spurs to Palace. And then he gave it to a bloke from the Daily Mail, which rather. Uh, made me quite annoyed but most of the time the managers were great and um, and that's how uh, he got into the big time big run uh, when he gets a bit uppity with me he's always taking the mickey I, I remind him that a conversation we had uh, before Manchester United playing in Walsall um, in Poland Ligia Walsall I think it was or one of these places we went for a long walk together And we were swapping about how I was a rugby first 15 captain at a public school, and the best he ever did was a milk monitor, so um, (laughs) comprehensive. So uh, every time he gets a bit uppity and trying to take the mickey, I say to him, not bad for a bloke who has only reached milk monitor status. So we do have a good laugh over that. Uh, The
0: two people that had the biggest impact on your career, the most significant, uh, Fergie and uh, Cluffy, and, yes. Uh, I mean, the book is littered with with just hilarious, amazing tales. Yeah, the the moment Clough kissed you on a on yes. a TV screen after the game against Everton. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine you standing there when one of the most famous faces in football just leans over across and just kisses you. I mean,
1: <laughs> I was
2: <laughs> shocked. And actually, I have got to be honest, I didn't handle it very well. I know there's a shot of me bouncing all over the place. Um, what had happened, actually, basically, I'll, I'll keep it short, was that we only had 30 seconds for the... It was a midweek match, and it was just before Nottingham Forest were playing at Wembley in the League Cup final. It was a midweek match, and I only had 30 seconds because we are going into news at 10, and they said, you've got to stick with it. And Clough had promised me an interview, whatever the result. So he comes bounding off. They, they, they've lost heavily, and they've played awful. They were awful. And he still gave me the interview. And uh, I started off by saying... You know, trying to make it easy for him because I didn't want to stuff him. He'd given me the interview and they'd lost and played badly. I said, "I said, uh, was that down to the fact that you're soon going to be playing at Wembley? And Cluffy said, no, only Albert is short of his place (laughs) on the coach to Wembley. And I, I got annoyed. I thought, they haven't got an Albert, you know, doing my homework. I said, you haven't got an Albert. He said, yes, we have. He's the driver. I thought, oh, no. So I got a bit annoyed and a bit unprofessional. I pushed him a bit too hard. And I overran, which is the worst thing you could do. I started to ask another question. And the floor manager, Trevor East, the head of ITV Sport, who's a great colleague of mine, he's going potty at me in my earpiece. And Stan Harding, the floor manager, is going potty. And Cluffy can see him. And he understood television, Cluffy. So he grabbed me and he said, why are we so bad? Because we're a bunch of pansies like you and me, and gave me this huge kiss. Well, I mean, I it was unbelievable. And the sports editors were watching the program because it was live in London. They got their uh, reporters to come around. Was he drunk? Uh, <laughs> and I, I said no. <laughs> No, he loves me. It's the only thing I could think of. But actually, I'm told that Northern comedians started telling much more vulgar jokes about <laughs> a kiss, um, uh, speculating where his tongue went, and all sorts of things. i better not go into on a nice program like this.
0: Uh, things that are like agents, which didn't really exist at that time, and you had stories of Cluffy. This was in particular about signing Roy McFarland, who Liverpool wanted at the time. Yes. and he and Peter Taylor just rock up at his house at 11:30. At night. I mean, the yes. state of confusion. McFarlane was in bed and he's just like, well, we're here to sign
2: you. Yes, I mean, I think it might have even been later than that, but it doesn't matter. It's late and and uh, uh, McFarlane's played, it was a Friday, and he's gone up to bed, he's in his pyjamas, the front doorbell goes, his parents answer it in their dressing gowns and there's Clough and Taylor. They'd done the deal with tranmere Now they had to persuade the player to sign. So, Roy McFarlane comes down, there's two gentlemen to see you, and they start talking to him, and he's not sure, and he turns to his father, and his father says, "Um, listen, if they want you that badly, sign it. So he's about to sign it, and then he thinks, now I'm going to Liverpool tomorrow, I know that Shankly wants me, I'm going to watch the match with my mate, Um, I'll try and stall it. And Taylor slides the contract under uh, his nose, McFarlane's nose, and says listen to your dad. You got to sign now. We can't wait till tomorrow. So he signs. And then he goes to Liverpool the next day and they win five nil. And he thinks, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. You know, what have I done? Anyway, he said what he did changed his life and his career because they, they started winning big time. Um, and he played for England. So it was a great move for McFarland, who I'm still in touch with. He's an ambassador at Derby County. Um, and then he, he wanted to sign Archie Gemmell from Preston, so he slept on the Gemmell family sofa all night until Gemmell signed the next morning. I mean, amazing. Ed Coff could not have coped with uh, with agents. There was one one agent uh, who he's, he just looks after Gary Lineker and a few of the great broadcasters. Yeah, now, yeah, I know. Called, called John Holmes, mm. a lifelong friend of mine. I used to do my finances, actually, before he became an agent. He, um, he took McAllister... Uh, Gary McAllister t- to meet Clough with a view to signing and and Clough behaved so badly that Holmes and McAllister just walked out and never signed for him. But he couldn't, he wouldn't have been able to cope with agents.
0: He did come out with some amazing quotes and there was the the relationship that you had with him. Mm. You talk about this handful of of trusted media. Uh, that UEFA Cup game against Sloban Bratislava where he you took your dad into the, dressing room and introduced him to the team i mean it's it's littered with lovely moments very personal highly personal moments
2: yeah my father flew in the slowest plane in the war Uh, only eight percent survived did 40 raids he'd come back off a day's bombing and find uh, sorry after, after a day's leave and find that his crew and the plane had been destroyed. It was just a matter of luck in the war. Anyway, he was to die at 62, unfortunately, from a heart attack. But he he wasn't into football. But like He loved boxing and cricket. But like many of his generation, the 1966 World Cup completely converted him. And he became football mad. And I was doing this match for ITV midweek, a uh, sports special, recorded highlights of Derby against slova Bratislava. And I said to Dad, do you want to come and sit with me? He said, Oh, I'd love to. So he comes up from Cambridge. We sit there. I introduce him to Clough before the match. And after the match, Clough walks past us and he said, Hey, come with me, Newborn, Mr. Newborn, come with me. And I thought he meant me. And he said, No, not you, your father. So he takes he takes him in there. He introduces it to all the players. He he my dad saw this these signs. What what are these about? You know, it's you know, God didn't invent grass to play football in the air and the greatest (laughs) crime in football is to give the ball away uh, and all these things and and he's asking my dad about the war and his business And, and I'm looking at my watch and thinking I'm on a deadline here, they've got to get this to London, anyway he eventually comes out just in time And he turned around to my dad and said, "Um, Mr. Newborn, Jack, Jack, if I may call you Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to do some work with your son. And he turned around to me in front of my dad, who was only five foot seven, and he he felt six foot, my dad, because he said, by the way, Gary, I much prefer your father to you. (laughs) (laughs) You Lovely. I was so grateful, honestly. It It was wonderful. I mean, my dad died, I suppose, about five years later. And I thought, well, you know cluffy was terrific and then when i had a stroke uh he wrote me the most beautiful letter short as it was just saying uh and he never really wrote letters he just said gary get well soon we love you brian and barbara clough and um it was fantastic and then he's you know there were times when when we you know you 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 have a bit of friction now and again but because it was a long relationship, but I mean, I remember I lost my voice one day, and I was meant to be introducing a highlight show from the ground after the match, and I turned up and I'd lost my voice, and my wife said, "You can't do it," and I said, "I'm not letting anybody else do it." So I turned up, and he come The first bloke I bumped into it was Clough. Morning, morning, right? <laughs> What's the matter with you? I've, I've lost my voice. There'll be two and a half million people in the Midlands absolutely thrilled with that news and pissed <laughs> off. You know, I mean, you know, that was, that was he came back with a doctor later on, but that was Cluffy, really. He just the great thing about him, you never knew what he was going to come out with. And it's quite interesting that Ferguson, Alex Ferguson was brilliant with me. I've interviewed Alec, Muhammad Ali three times, Pele seven times, Beckenbauer, Kaldur, all these people. Great names of sport. I've been very lucky. Number one, they asked me, brian clough always the most intriguing interviewee didn't know what he was going to do where i was going to be with him um an amazing guy um you know he, he had everything really uh, good and bad um but wonderful and uh, um,
0: and the millions of quotes by the way in this in this book yeah uh, I think the one that made literally made you laugh out loud because I I hadn't heard it before and I've, you've heard many yeah. of them is when Martin O'Neill asked him, "Why do you keep yes. playing me in the second team because I don't have a third team?" <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, Martin O'Neill is a very, in fact, he's on the back of my book. I've got some great quotes from people, including Martin, and a very clever guy, a law student who gave it up to to play football. He was he was a bit too clever for Clough. Uh, he liked Clough and respected him, but I'm not sure Clough particularly liked him. And and you know when I'd be talking to Clough, he'd say, "Well, uh, Archie, this and my son Nigel and that, and our number seven, by the way, may not be as clever as he as he thinks he is." Anyway, <laughs> a, anyway, it was it was uh, it was a great story, and and you know he put him in the second team for quite a while, and Martin went in, and that was the answer. Um, but when Martin was manager of Celtic. Um, with John Robertson, who was a fantastic player on the wing for Nottingham Forest. Uh, I I used to go and cover those matches for ITV when they played in Europe. Uh, One of the great atmospheres in Europe was Celtic, actually. And and I'd I'd go to the Hilton Hotel in Glasgow because I'd stay there because the team and Martin were there. And Martin and uh, John Robertson, the three of us, would sit in the lobby while the players were asleep. Going over Clough stories, and there were so many. Like, Rome wasn't built in a day, you know. But I wasn't on that particular <laughs> job. I mean, stuff like that. Just, just magic. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I'm the best manager in the world, but I'm number one for sure, you know. And things like that. I mean, he, he just, he just came out with a, a massive stuff. Really, it was just very funny.
0: When you look back at your relationship with, with Fergie. And yes. uh, you're, as you've said again in the book, the, the infamous first interview that you you have with him, and you literally get straight in and ask him about the potential for him getting the sack. I mean, for you to make a knowing what we know about Alex Ferguson, for you to make a recovery from that, and that not to be festering for years afterwards was a significant achievement.
2: It was. Actually, it, it taught me a great lesson as well that, you know, if you've got something like that, check. I mean, one of the things that disappoints me, and I, I try not to comment on present people because I'm out of the game now. I mean, you know, I, I, there's no point me, newspapers sometimes try and get, draw me on, on what I think about this and that. And it's not really my place. so It's just that the only thing I feel about about interviewers now on football is that... They will do. They're trying to prove to you that they know a lot about the game, and that and they say so. Uh, they talk to a player or a manager, and they say so. You hit the bar twice in the first half. You had two goals ruled offside. Uh, the referee didn't do you much favours on that penalty decision, um, and then stick the mic under their nose. Or just say, do you agree? Well, I'm not interested in what the interviewer thinks. I'm interested. Yeah, yeah I get that. The guy. So I went straight in and said, well, you're... the word is that you're you're facing the sack. Um, boom. And I thought I was talking to a boxer or something, looking back. And, and I was wrong. I was wrong. I should have warned him. So when I went to Norwich, I didn't do anything about it. I, I, I didn't realize I'd caused a problem really because he cut short the interview but I thought that's because he wanted to get back to the dressing room so when we did Norwich about three or four weeks later against Manchester United I went up to him and said Alec you're right for an interview afterwards no why not you ask crap questions but where I respected him (laughs) where I respected him was that he said I could talk to anybody else but not him anyway I used to introduce a program that half the country took every fortnight on the Thursday called fight night young boxers professional boxers on their way up. So I happened to be staying in Manchester at the Midland Hotel. And much to my amazement, when I go down for the buffet breakfast, as it was in those days, Sir Alex is sitting on his own. So I thought, hmm. So I went up to him and said, can I join you for breakfast? And he looked at me a bit puzzled and said, yes. Which surprised me. So I went and got my buffet. And I'm thinking, well, I've done the difficult thing. What do I do now? So I sat down, looked him straight in the face and said, Can I start again? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, if I have a curveball question like the one I asked you the other week, I will tell you all about it first. And he said, okay. And that's what happened. And that's, people didn't realize that. And that's what happened for the rest of our time. And he went the other way. He started seeing us at four o'clock and the commentator and the producer and, uh, telling us the team and the thoughts and the opposition, knowing we wouldn't use it till we went on on air. We were live with these European matches. He agreed to do a halftime interview with me, and he was just fantastic for the next, I suppose, 22 years, I suppose, I worked with him. Um, and nothing came as a surprise, because he wanted, He was a, an outstanding manager, probably the best we've ever had at club level. and And he just didn't want his authority challenged. So if a player challenged his authority, not challenged what he said, but challenged his authority, they were moved on. And in the end, although he had a lot of time for Beckham, and like Beckham, um, Beckham became bigger than the club in his eyes. And that, that was probably the story behind his move.
0: When you think about um, guests or pundits who've been difficult or you haven't found easy to work with, where does Alf Ramsey rank?
2: Well, this is an interesting story because uh, one of the things that I've said in my book is that I followed all these great names. I used to get on a train to go see Jimmy Greaves and I was involved in him in coming into television. I used to follow Billy Wright as a model footballer captain and then I worked for him. Um, and, all, and, and Brian Clough, I saw as a schoolboy and then I, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, was, it was very strange how life works out i once interviewed sir alf ramsey when i was at westwood television and found him really difficult it was an under 23 match being played at home park so in 1974 he's been sacked by england for failing to get to the um 74 world cup um yeah, in Germany. He's been sacked. Sorry, just lost. It's 72 Olympics. I'm just getting the years. Yeah, map. It's right. So it's 1974 World Cup in Germany and ITV signing as their pundit and special guy. So they decide that I'm going to be his interviewer and chaperone, amongst other things like Johan and and we'd bought and everything else for interviews. So I didn't know what was going to be ahead of me, but I got on with him really well we travelled the length and breadth of Germany with a chauffeur up and down the autobahns. I spoke more to him on the interviews than I did in the car. Uh, I sat in the front. He sat in the back with his wife, Lady Vicky. And on the interviews, he was fine, absolutely fine. Um, And we we struck up a, a good interest. I had an interest in the Greyhound that... Reached the final, the Greyhound Derby final. It was a big, big news in those days 50,000 people at White City called Jimson. And they wanted, the owners wanted, wanted to fly me back because I was a good luck charm and ITV obviously wouldn't release me. I'm in Dusseldorf with my wife's come out, uh, or my fiance, as she was at the time. Or, no, she was married then. So she's come out and joined us. And I've taken Alf and her to a restaurant in Dusseldorf in the old town. And I'm trying desperately to get the result of this dog race because I've got money on it. Anyway, <laughs> I eventually got through to the news of the world and because um, so I knew their number because I wrote football for them. And the guy says, and if you won the dog result, it was Jimson. Ah! And in his understated way, Ramsey looked at me and said, I take it the dog won, <laughs> you see. So I said, yeah. Anyway, at the end of it, he put in a really good word for my- for me with the bosses which I really appreciated Um, and thanked me very much for looking after him and it was a pleasure and he said I had no idea how difficult your job was and indeed if I were to be a manager again which I won't be I would treat you people much differently I said well thanks that's really nice to know Alf." anyway amazingly he becomes manager of Birmingham City (laughs) and they lose 4-0 at Coventry and I'm the interviewer, and I knock on the door because you could do that in those days. And he answered, hello, Gary. Nice to see you. Hello, Alf. Any chance of an interview? No, thank you. And shut the door. (laughs) Managers who appear on television and pundits when they're out of work often revert to type (laughs) when they get a a manager's job again. And Alf was my first example of that.
0: You got him out, though, didn't you, on the... Eve of the competition closing the world cup finishing to uh an end of tournament booze up in a marquee in munich
2: yeah well i've told you about my relationship with crews they're very important to me and um much to my sort of horror really in a way uh not so much the request from the the boys on the outside broadcast but his answer um alf is all right if we ask alf something gary yeah yeah go ahead alf yes we're going to a beer house, uh, you know, where they serve beer and they've got an umpire band and, and everything. Would you and Lady Vicky like to come? Yes. Yes. I think <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, are you coming, Gary? Oh, yes, I'm coming, Alf. So we all sit there. There are bottles flying everywhere. And um, no one recognises Alf Ramsey. And it's only just like, isn't it? It's just... Uh, it's, it's it's four years after Mexico and only eight years after England have beaten them, but nobody recognised them. And the bottles are flying, and I'm saying, "Are you all right, Alf? Yes, bit different, isn't it? Bit different." Um, <laughs> and and I'm thinking, "Yeah, it is a bit different." But he was fine on it. Um, but it was an unusual experience.
0: Now you you got one of the best signings, and I remember this vividly growing up in the in the eighties and, and watching it is when Greavesy arrives on ITV. And I remember, again, seeing in the, in the book one of the local news outlets writing, why have we got to have a Londoner, not a Midlander, on our screens? But he he was one of those, wasn't he, that you rarely come on who just takes to television as as if it is just second nature. There's no trying. I mean, oh. you know, a deeper dive than Jack Cousteau. I mean, the quips, St. Yeah. Greasy. I mean, it was just pure... Television gold.
2: Actually, I wouldn't want to correct you too much, Tim. But Go. actually, he wasn't very good to start with. What <laughs> what, what basically happened? Sorry about but that I stuff. You're in happened. the blood. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, but God, what happened it's all right. Was that that, that um, Michael Grade now Lord Grade and John Bromley uh, won the snatch of the day of, of match of the day contract which ironically still with the BBC and then they've just had it extended as we speak um so uh BBC go to court they're not happy about it and the judge rather fudged it by saying right well the first year of this new contract it'll be ITV on a Saturday night and BBC on a Sunday afternoon with Jimmy Hill and then vice versa the following season so we're at fairly short notice suddenly faced with doing Star Soccer, which was the Midlands show, on a Saturday night out the studio with that day's football. Somebody suggested Derek Dugan, who was a great friend of mine, but Derek was a bit verbose, as was to be proved when he went to Yorkshire Television as a presenter, despite advice that I'd given him. Um, and I, I just couldn't think of who I really wanted in this new role. And we're, we're now on Monday, the, the week of the of the event, on the Saturday, and. There's Billy Wright, head of sport, myself, presenter, assistant head of sport, Trevor E, sports editor and producer of the program, and the overall boss of us, really, Tony Flanagan, the executive producer. And we, we're arguing about names, and I'm saying, oh, I'm not sure about that. Mm, yeah, maybe. And then Tony Flanagan says, I'm just reading a col- column. He was a northerner. Just reading a column of Jimmy Greaves. Anybody got any view on that? I said, yeah, I've just seen a documentary about his drinking because he's packed up, you know, he's an alcoholic who doesn't drink, um, One Day at a time or something. I can't remember the name of the title. But yeah, yeah, he's 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 an interesting guy, great player. I used to watch him as a schoolboy. What do you think? Well, I can't think of anybody else. And we had a vote, and all four said we'll go for Greavesy. So Trevor East rings Greaves who says, uh, I live in deep, Essex, uh, to be honest, Trev, I don't really fancy it, so <laughs> back to the switchboard, so we're now in Birmingham, we're desperate, and Thursday, I'm sitting there, so is there any point having another meeting, Trev, I mean, what are we going to do, and then suddenly, by coincidence, his phone goes, Hello, Trevor. it's uh, Jimmy Greaves here. My old lady, Irene, says, I've got to take the job. Hey, am I too late? And Trevor <laughs> says, no, but you've got to be here tomorrow, Friday, to be on the local news program with Gary to promote it. So he comes on, signs the contract, comes on. He's as nervous as hell, obviously. And the first few shows, he's okay, but I'm trying to teach him the ropes, and Trevor and I are Chatting to him, chatting him through it, and, and he's getting through. And the local paper writes an editorial why we got a uh, a Londoner, a Cockney doing it. We well, wasn't Cockneys from Essex, but a Londoner doing it. Uh, the, the 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 viewers are going potty. There's letters coming in, and then about four programmes in, it all changes because Greavesy is watching Birmingham against Blackpool and Blackpool's Alan Ainsco gets a penalty. And Crazy says, Gal, this is an even deeper dive than Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> anyway, the second match, I'll never forget it. Manchester City against Coventry. Coventry got this flying winger called Tommy Hutchison. He goes one way past Willie, Willie Donickey, the uh, fullback for Man City. Then the other way. Then beats him twice before he crosses the ball, and Gravesy says they had to unravel Willie in the dressing room afterwards and tell him where he'd been, gal. You know, and I start <laughs> laughing. I never heard anybody. I mean, people have credited me with spotting a guy who's got great humour. I I got fed up explaining I didn't know. So now when people still say it, I take the credit because I think well, there's no point in explaining I didn't know. Um, but then, that we were fifteen companies at war really and London were, didn't treat us very well on a sports level and they picked they were picking the World Cup team and they didn't want to know I was picked for the 82 World Cup in Spain but they wouldn't pick Jeff Farmer who joined me he was a brilliant journalist they wouldn't pick Jimmy Greaves so Trevor East and I went down to see John Bromley and said look you've got to have Greaves one of your blokes has said he's a disaster in the Midlands and they've never even seen him he's rocking the audiences here ELO take a, a recording set with them and between recording songs in munich they're playing they're playing star soccer to laugh at greavesy because he's making them all laugh <laughs> i said the whole midlands is falling in love with this bloke on television because he's so funny he's so personable you've got to use him so Bromley said okay lads i'll take your word so they signed him, and he became a massive hit at the 82. You know, Tardelli is such a dirty player for Italy. He's responsible, said Greasy, for more scar tissue than the surgeons at Harfield Hospital and <laughs> things like that. I mean, you know, line after line. So then Bob, nothing to do with me, but Bob Patience, who was a producer at London Weekend, came up with this idea of St. Greasy, which was brilliant. And St. And Greasy and St. John and Jimmy Grease became a must-watch program on Saturdays. It was so funny, so brilliant. I mean, they even got Donald Trump on the show at Trump, uh, Trump Plaza you know, drawing yeah, yeah. the league cup and Greavasley taking the piss out of him by present I am now gonna present you, Donald, with something very rare: a St. and Greavesy <laughs> coffee mug. <laughs> you know, and he doesn't know what's going on, Trump. He draws leads against Manchester United and Greavesy says, Oh Donald, you don't know what you've done here. Yeah. And I mean the guy was just unbelievable and very funny. Um and that's how it all happened and and I had 18 years with him. I've I've got to
0: ask you about, um, I know we've been talking for a while here, but I do want to mention your persona, your style. Now, it was often seemed to be controversial, often seemed to be uh, outspoken. Was this something that you actually actively tried to develop or was it just you being you?
2: It was me being me because I'd come through this tough line, you know, We've talked about my my journalistic side in in two uh, two agencies. It was really tough, the the pressure on me to get stories. um, And that was one factor. The other factor, I suppose, was that boxers took it. But what used to annoy me, and it was unreasonable because boxing is a dangerous, brain-damaging sport, was that we pay a lot of money for a fight and realize that one of our big stars would be fight, fighting what one of my bosses would affectionately call a Mexican road sweeper, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I would get annoyed. You know, I'd get annoyed with it, and and also, uh, yeah, I, I, and and I wasn't aggressive. Aggressive interviewer, and that's where I came unstuck to start with with Alex Ferguson. But I mean, Eubank was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I remember Jim Watt giving him some stick in a, in a fight, and, and and I gave him some stick as he got out of the ring, and uh, and I said, well, that was awful, Chris. Um, Jim Watt's giving you stick, and this question is is that you were, uh, will you would you agree you were awful tonight? And instead of getting all upset he went that was a bit below the belt <laughs> you know I mean <laughs> he was just fantastic you, and, and actually the, I didn't get on with him the first time I interviewed him because again aggressive he, in his early fight in Brighton he fought um, an Argentinian and it was for one of these Tim Pot belts not the world title and he, he was awful actually um, it was a, the Argentinian was a spoiler and Chris didn't cope and it was a boring fight on ITV It was recorded, but it was still a boring fight on Midweek Sports Special. And I said to him, if you fight like that, you will never be world champion. And he said to me, that tells me you know nothing about boxing. Anyway, he sought me out at a hotel that we happened to boat in, and we had a long chat. And he said, we have to work together. We can't be doing this. And I said, well, I'm happy to do that, Chris, but I'm not going to be your PR. So anyway, we shook hands, and we got on really well. And then his... I was introducing, presenting with Barry McGuigan, the Eubank close fight in King's Hall, Belfast. And I'm I'm in the Europa Hotel. Eubank is in the Balmoral on the outskirts. And he's got a suite there with Barry Hearn and uh, Ronnie Davis, his trainer in in, in, in the room. And he calls me up and says, I need to see you this morning. I said, it's the morning of the fight, Chris. I need to see you. You've got to come to the hotel. Now, there was a rumor going around, which was true, that he was going to join Sky. And he said he wanted to make an announcement. And I've wound myself up because I think he's going to announce that he's joining Sky, which would have been awful on an ITV program. So I was a bit fired up, and I walked in, and I accused him of doing that. And he was lying on a shade long. And he said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that, honestly. So I calmed down and said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to thank ITV. So I said, okay, but give me my word. You won't mention, yep, yep, okay. So then it was all a bit relaxed. I was still a bit annoyed, but relaxed. And then he said, how many fights of mine have you covered? So I said, 16. He said, what will you remember most? So I said, well, in the first fight, you told me that I knew absolutely nothing about boxing. 16 fights later, I paid you a compliment and you said, that really means something for somebody as knowledgeable uh, and steeped in the sport as you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I said, so in 16 fights, I've, I've, I've gone from knowing F all to being an absolute <laughs> expert on the sport, and I'm very grateful to him. He laughed so much, he fell off the Shay lounge, and I thought the fight was off for a moment, but he was all right. And everyone was roaring with laughter. I mean, that was, that was you, Bank. He was just, he was just incredible, really. Um,
0: you, you got boxing back onto to ITV in the the mid eighties. It, it, it wasn't really a staple part of it. Uh, I mean, after those you know, appearances on World of Sport well, and, and whatever, it, it, but it, the early it, days, it, you yeah. were you were around people like a young unsigned Joe Bugner. You know, back in the days, you had um, you had on your patch. You had a, a great boxing scene. Obviously, Pat Cowdell for, yeah. for a start. Latter yeah. days, you have Richie Woodall. There was Tony Tony Sibson there as well. Yeah. And again, as a, as somebody who was growing up watching that stuff in the in the eighties, because there was no Sky. It was the window we had to to big fights. So hearing, you know, Reg Gutteridge, who was just outstanding, you know, and Jim Watt equally so. Uh, broadcasting from from Vegas, we used to get the fights a day after all, unless you did the, the simulcasts. Yeah. But it, it was, um, I mean, it was it was always must watch, and there were great shows in those days.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't actually, in fairness, take the credit for. For for what you said to start with there about putting it on, that's down to Frank Warren taking on the cartel who had boxing sewn up the Jarvis Astaire Mickey Duff Terry Lawless and Mike Barrett, uh, and a guy called Bob Burroughs no longer with us who he was head of sport at Thames who backed who backed uh, Frank Warren. So uh, I then picked it up not long afterwards I started getting involved. But in fairness, it was it was down to those two and particularly Frank Warren who I still think is the best boxing promoter in this country. Mm. Um, Barry Hearn will argue that his son, Eddie, is, yeah, well, Eddie's done a fantastic job, uh, and Barry did. But for me, Warren has been there at the start of ITV. Now, of course, he's with TNT, having worked for Sky. And 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 for me, I'm allowed an opinion on this. He's the he's the best promoter in this country, and he's now got Tyson Fury and the, and, the, and a lot of good heavyweights. So it was down to them. But then I got heavily involved, and... And I suppose, you know, my my trenchant style, tough style of interviewing, I didn't do it deliberately, I promise you that. But it, I was aware after a while it did have an attraction. But the biggest thing I did was I was really, I've always tried to get on with everybody. I, I don't see the point of falling out with people unless you have to. And you're bound to have scrapes and things and trying to get over them. So I was very friendly with the opposition, like Duff, uh, Astaire, Lawless and Barrett. They liked me, even though we'd fight tooth and nail over fights and, you know, we were ITV, they were BBC. But one day Mickey Duff said to me, Do you know Nazim Hamid? And I said, Yeah, because I go to the Sheffield gym to interview all the world champions. And he's this little kid, amateur kid. He was a naughty boy and his dad sent him to the gym so he'd behave himself. I said, He's got an incredible tongue. He said, Well, I've signed him. Oh, I said, I was a bit disappointed, actually. He said, but I can't get him on the BBC. I said, why not? And you cannot believe that they said this then, in this day and age that we're in now. He said, they don't want an Arab on. Oh. For real? For real. So, and I've written that in the book. I haven't mentioned the guy's name, actually, from the BBC. But I then got on the phone to Trevor East and said, Trevor, this guy, trust me, Nazim Hamid, he's going to be colossal. Honestly, honestly, please. I know he's an amateur and he's only just turned pro, but this is the story with Mickey Duff. And he got on to Frank Warren and Frank said, I'll put him on as long as you will televise it. And he, we put it on at Mansfield. And I had a lunch with N- Nazim about three years ago, actually, funny enough. And that's the rest was history. And he became probably one of the great boxers ever to come out of this country. And, um, that's how it all happened. That's why he finished on ITV. That's why he finished on television. I'm gonna um, mention
0: one more sport. Yeah, because I've motor got it. and it's it's motor it's motorsport, Yeah, because there are two there's, there's yeah. two great instances, again in, in the book. First of all, how you actually met Nigel Mansell.
2: Yeah, well, I, I live I live in a road in Solihull. I still live there. I moved here in nineteen seventy-six, full of big old houses. I love it here. And um off, there's a few roads off it and one of them is Mearside Way with a flats, with flats and it turned out there was a young guy in there who was a Formula 3 driver who had broken his back severely enough to be told he wouldn't walk again when a Formula Ford car landed on him and uh, he was told they'd be in a wheelchair um, and they could never drive again and he discharged himself after a Uh, a week in hospital, just got up, um, which told you a lot about the guy. So then he starts running up and down our road trying to get fit. And I'm driving home from introducing the local news program that night, actually. And as I pull into my drive, I wound my window down, something you probably wouldn't do in this day and age. But I said, I don't know who you are or what you're doing, but why don't you come and have a cup of tea and explain? I was quite curious. I'd seen him before. So he sat in a chair. And he convinced my wife and I that he would be one day Formula One motor racing driver. And that um, he told us his history. But he said, I need TV exposure. And I need some sponsorship. You've got to help me. And do you play squash? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I do. So we played every day squash to start with. And I could not beat him, which infuriated me. I'm a bad loser. I hit him against the wall. I (laughs) smashed his racket. I drew blood. And all he'd do is laugh. he he wouldn't show any pain and Jonah Barrington who was a former world squash champion who lived in Solihull at the time would lean over at the Albany hotel uh, and uh, would say that I couldn't believe me. He said, you're the dirtiest, filthiest. You should never be on the squash court. And then I got banned. We got banned from Edgbaston Priory, a very snobby club, a lovely club actually, as it happens because of my language at Nigel. Um, So, he got me into quite a lot of trouble. And he would come into our office to, while I'd write the scripts with Trevor East. Because he had no money, we'd give him a couple of quid to go and buy some rolls out the canteen while we finished the script. And then I'd play him squash. And then one day we're playing squash and he said to me... Well, I'd said he'd said to me one day, yeah, you've got to send a whole lot of cameras to Silverson. I'm having a test for Colin Chapman at Lotus and I want to impress them. So I had all these cameras flying around. Anyway, about... Two weeks later, we're playing squash and he said, I can't play tomorrow. I'm going to the Isle of Man. I said, oh, when are you back? He said, I'm not. I said, what are you going there for? He said, I'm going to live. Well, what do you want to go there for? He said, because Colin Chapman's just paid me a million pounds. I need to get out of the country. And we've stayed in touch. I still talk to him. He lives in Florida now because he can't. His back is so bad and he's in so much pain that although he plays golf, he can't do his shoelaces. That's sad. Um, And that's the amazing story of, of Nigel Mansell. Um,
0: and lastly, Barry Sheen, because again, from that fabulously glamorous uh, era, the 90s, when we had obviously James Hunt and Barry Sheen, but what a what a guy, but the, the bit in there that stood out was the fact that he had a hole drilled in his uh, chin bar on his helmet, so he could actually have a cigarette while he was on the grid. Yes,
2: um, he he never stopped smoking unfortunately i'm sure it killed him because he died from cancer in australia um although i don't know that I, I would imagine it but he was always smoking he he was a wonderful guy he was charismatic he was uh a winner um huge following i used to cover him in the two midlands tracks um donnington park and uh, in derbyshire and mallory park in leicestershire and he we just hit it off from day one um And I would go in his motor caravan with him and his uh, future wife, Stephanie McLean, a beautiful model. Um, And Barry just looked after me. I mean, he was a dream to interview. Um, Nothing was too much trouble. He was a brilliant rider. And when he had this terrible smash, I don't know how he survived, a guy called Nigel Cobb, a surgeon, put him together at Silverstone at 140 miles an hour. He smashed everything. When he finally came out of hospital in a wheelchair, he was to ride again. Um, there was The media were packed because he was a superstar and he was on the Brute adverts with Henry Cooper and everything else. He spotted me and picked me out and I got the first interview. Um, and that meant a lot to me. What I would say one of the most important things in my career and to me as a person has been the trust that people have have put me on, on the back of my book, there's a quote from David Seaman, the former great goalkeeper for Arsenal in England, who said, Gary was a great professional and you always knew you could put your trust in that smiling face. And that was really important. That's what upset me about um, uh, upsetting Ferguson the first time I met him, That you know, that I felt he couldn't trust me. And, and you know, if you miss out on the odd thing, so be it, but you gain more in the in the long run. And I think that, no one can really say that I broke their trust. I've never broken a confidence knowingly and um, Brian Clough said to me one, I asked him one thing in confidence once and he said I don't do things in confidence because if you don't use it now you'll use it in 10 years time mm. and there's a lot of truth in that as well so I've, there are situations where I haven't actually named the people in here not because of evases not for legal reasons but because I would be breaking a trust and and that you know, you don't last fifty years in T V in front of a camera if you if you keep go around breaking trusts.
0: Told you it was funny. That was Gary Newbon talking to me recently. His book, Gary Newbon, bloody hell! It is out on November the sixteenth, and there are so many other stories and great anecdotes that we simply didn't get close to talking about. Would have been there all day otherwise. It's available for order now at Amazon and all of the other usual retail outlets, and yes, you will laugh quite a lot reading this and that is it for this edition we will return before christmas with a seasonal collection of the best bits of the year and don't forget you can listen to every previous edition there's over 50 of them on the website www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the main streaming providers Thank you very much again for listening in, and I look forward to your company again when we return in a few weeks' time. For the moment, though, from me, Tim Capel. Bye-bye for now.